Hello, you're listening to Stalwarts of Music with Aditya Veera, Season 2. Today's episode is being partnered by Perpetual Buzz Experiences. They are an artist representation company with three very basic but lofty goals. They're the launchpad for indie musicians, helping them leverage success to produce some of the most memorable experiences for music lovers. They also help generate funding for social causes and make sure people have a good time throughout the process. Be sure to check them out on www.perpetualbuzz.com. On the occasion of Mahindra Percussion Festival, I could not think of a better name than Mr. Ranjit Barot to be my guest on the show. He's on the forefront of both worlds, the mainstream popular Indian commercial music and he also plays jazz fusion genres in world music. He's a musical director for A.R. Rahman's live concerts and holds the coveted throne for being a world-renowned drummer for the one and only Sir John McLaughlin. He's worked in the industry for more than four decades now and enthralled audiences and has worked with giants such as Adi Berman Saab, Lakshmi Kant, Lal, A.R. Rahman. He's won a Filmfare Award for his contributions in the movie industry and was a sound designer for the Commonwealth Games held in Delhi back in 2010. I could keep reading the number of accolades this gentleman has achieved. So without any further ado, I'm delighted to welcome my guest for today, Ranjit Barot. Hi, hi Ranjit. Hi. How are you? I'm very well, Aditya. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Before we get started, uh, are you in good rhythm after an eclectic set at the Mahindra Percussion Festival last night. How was it? Oh, it was banging. It was um, fantastic. I mean, it was a, it was a long day, uh-huh. but um, we had superb artists. The crowd was fantastic. It was packed. And more importantly, it didn't rain. <laughs> right, right. Are you I based feel- in Bangalore? I am based in Bangalore. Very unfortunate that I just came to Coimbatore to visit my family last week and I okay. missed out on this wonderful festival. And I feel no, so it was bad. Great. Yeah. It was yeah. great. We had drummers, we had the Spanish folks. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> my good friend Arto Tunsabatian, who used to play with Joe Zavanol at Weather Report, I mean, with the oh, uh, wow. okay. Syndicate. Right. Um, and of course, you know, drummers, Gino Banks, they were there, Shiva Mani was there, and, uh, Selva Ganesh. Oh, lovely. So him and I did a couple of pieces. So yeah, it was, it was fun. It was fun. Lovely. Great to hear that. So I have a couple of very interesting questions coming your way as part of our agenda today. Mm-hmm. Shall we get started? Yeah. So speaking of the aspect of uh, creativity, In some measure, there are so many different facets all of us aspire to have, say, in terms of qualities, right? So I'd like to understand from you how much of this is genetic, how much of it comes from the environment, and how much of it is karmic, in your opinion, Uh, not just from the context of academic learning, but there's also a lot that we learn as part of our ingrained experiences, you being such a seasoned musician. Right? So right. I'm talking, I'm also talking in the context of the environment that you grew up in. Your mother right. was in the arts, you had a great childhood wherein you had access to maestros like Vilayat Khan and Ala yeah, Raka yeah, Saab, yeah. uh, who visited your place for jam sessions. So could you, yeah, could you yeah. elaborate on that? 
So let's approach your question in sort of stages. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely think <laughs> that part of it is karmic. Okay. Uh, we are reborn with residual aspirations and uh, residual um, experiences from our journey before. And to uh, um, enter into a state of life which has you, as a creative person, I wouldn't just say musician, any of the creative arts, mm-hmm. I think is a culmination of quite a long karmic journey. Okay. Some who we experience in this lifetime who we say are prodigious or you know, suddenly are playing genius level at 10, like Mandolin Srinivasji, sure. who I had the great, great honor to play with. What you are witnessing is basically a soul that has traveled many times and is now manifesting in a in a form that is actually it's like going to the temple. When you feel if I went to see him play at 10, you're doing darshan, actually, because what does a 10-year-old child know? about the impact that he is having on the audience, you know? Yeah. Uh, you, you are witnessing you're witnessing a higher power speak through him. So that is what we are. We are travelers who need to keep our channels clear so that the divine muse and the beautiful energy that is in the universe can flow through us and we can speak uh, about that manifestation through our chosen art and field, be it painting, dance, poetry, music. Mm -hmm. Environment, of course, has a lot to do with it because, as you mentioned, my mother, um, Sitara Devi, had, you know, great associations with many uh, fantastic musicians, including uh, Zakirbhai's father. Oh, lovely. Okay. And... uh, he would come over and, you know, I would just, I would be blessed just to be in his presence and hear him recite. And and he was a saint of a man, you know. Um, oh, okay. So there'd be Nazakat Salamat from Pakistan. There'd be Mehdi Hassan Saab. There'd be Vilayat Khan Saab. I used to go to Raiz Khan Saab's room and do my homework. <laughs> and then he would come out and play sitar. And I'd hear that for three hours and then crash out in the cab on the way home. So these were all blessings. These were part of my sure. early education, you know. I mean, I grew up in a time where there wasn't internet, no radio. There was, I mean, we had radio, but we had like uh, all your Hindi music. But we had one station, the Voice of America, which was run by a gentleman called Willis Conover at that time. Okay. And I got to hear some big band music, some swing, some mm-hmm. jazz, Louis Belson, Buddy Rich. And um, otherwise, I I would just go <clears throat> and find where other drummers were playing and try and learn, you know. So that's it. And to answer your question, it is all three of those, karmic, genetic, and environmental. That has a part to play. But then the reins are in your hand. It's what you do with that <clears throat> genetic information and real-life experience. What do you do with it? And then uh, take it forward. Right. 
it it leads me to another follow up question uh, i've always been wondering you know as to childhood experience in india uh, it is very distinctive and makes us as indian adults perhaps different from a lot of other communities and societies right so what what is your take on something like this so i was born in england but i uh, moved back permanently when i was about 10 okay so for all practical purposes childhood after then was all in india all right um i think there's a sense of being rooted i think the fam- family structure in india is very tight you know what i mean right right my mother was very very protective of me and she was she was like my guardian angel really so mm-hmm. i had such an emotional secure blanket around me that i was never not confident in school or you know i, I never felt inferior to even kids that were they were i mean the school i went to millionaires you know like rich rich kids right but uh the beauty was at that time this massive display of wealth wasn't there you know it wasn't okay in your face so to speak so we all got along just fine it was all just kids playing there was no hierarchy so growing up growing up in india is i would imagine very different from growing up anywhere else and, and i think a lot of it has to do with family and my mother was you know a single parent after they my parents got divorced when i was 10 uh, okay so she took on the mantle of being my mother and my father you know being being uh, the nurturer and the disciplinarian you know she yeah, had to yeah. be both and it was tough for her because she herself was so bohemian she wasn't really um as structured as other people are you know she was consumed by her art mm-hmm. but in that <clears throat> i was i was uh, you know a part of her immediate sphere of consciousness it was dance in me so i think i was almost spoiled uh, i grew up very very happy and protected no problems right uh, it's it's sort of frequently held that uh, a lot of great artists you being one of them uh need to go through a lot of vicissitudes of life and then experience and then there's intensity and pain right so have you seen that happen to you or do you feel in some ways because of like you mentioned you've been protected by your mother and her affluence towards uh things uh, have you felt the realness of life in uh some ways possibly in many ways and okay. many times okay the only difference being <clears throat> i think that uh and i don't know this is probably true for everyone i think most of the hardships i brought i did myself which is why i've never blamed any external force for any wrong doings that i may have perceived in my life yeah there may be one or two instances where uh-huh. you know you've been uh, sort of betrayed by a friend or yeah you know i had your heart broken or something like that but most of the massive uh um sort of 
tumultuous times in my life were brought on by myself. I, I went in eyes wide open into situations that, <clears throat> looking back now, I could have very well done without. Um, also, of course, being a musician and an artist, you exorcise yourself and write songs about it and, you know, put it into your music so that there's no residual damage from those experiences because now we've written about it, we've sung about it, let's move on in life and, uh, you know, look forward to the next beautiful experience. But that being yeah. said, uh, but that being said, is the aim to maximize the number of blissful moments as an artist? Is that what you're trying to do? Is that the objective? Well, of I'm saying as an artist, the only form of real expression we have is through our art form. So uh, let me give you a very simple example. I tell musicians that I work with and musicians who I've worked with have shared this with me. When you play and you express yourself, you can only tell your life story. You can't borrow somebody's life story. You know, why would you want to play like somebody else or be somebody else? Yep. There's a unique distinction that comes from one person living his or her life, coming to terms with it, wrestling the bad things, turning it into something, you know, taking lemons and making lemonade. And uh, when you hear me play, I'm hoping that you hear a unique voice. And that unique voice is a sum total of his life's experiences. I, I'm... I'm I'm expressing subconsciously, not consciously. I'm expressing everything I've been through when I played. That commitment of saying, um, you know, this is me. I've been through all of this. I'm so many years old. I'm happy. I'm you know this. And these are my aspirations. Blah blah blah. We 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 express this through our playing. You hear it in our playing. Yeah. If you listen closely enough. If if let's talk about the aspect of uh, teaching or, or music yeah. education, right? So yeah. if I were to come learn music from someone like you, yes. what are some of the artistic qualities that you would consider uh, most valuable if you were to teach me some music? Well, upon you presenting yourself to me, um, it's an intuitive sort of decision because on hearing you and meeting you it's not just about what vocation you have your personality and trying to read how open you are to certain forms of discipline and uh, how open you are to my way of thinking if if i am to make you my student and first of all i think the whole student thing is a little lopsided today in music education because um Anybody who's an artist is like a flowing river, man. You, if you want to come with a teacup, you want to come with a kettle, you want to come with a barrel, you know, you come, you watch that artist flow, you, you, you take a dip and you walk away with as much information as you can. Today with the internet, there's not much about the, the sort of rudimentary aspects of my craft, say drumming, that, that aren't there. You don't need me. You don't need me to understand uh, uh, exercises and rudiments and what to play. You might need me on why to play, or you might need me on how to apply those things and what would make that information musical. And you will definitely need me 
to unlearn all of that strict rudimentary exercises that I hear musicians presenting the classroom on stage. I don't want to hear your exercises. I don't want to hear uh, a sped up version of uh, uh, drum rudiments and flashy things, combinations around the drum kit. That for me is not exciting or interesting. I mean, I don't remember the last time John McLaughlin asked me whether I knew how to play a parrot diddle. Uh, and I don't, I don't play those things. So I think the aspect of music education, and I know that some critics will uh, not like to hear this. I think it's necessary up to a certain point, but I think guidance is much more important today. Uh, yes, you need to have technique and you must, you know, uh, understand the rules before you can break them. Mm-hmm. But you really, really need guidance today. Uh, the great Tony Williams used to have two teachers. Uh, I'm forgetting who the second teacher was, but the first teacher, I think, was Alan Dawson uh, in the Boston area, who was his teacher for technique and, you know, uh, getting around the drum set. But he had another teacher for imagination, for guidance. And I think that is more relevant today than it ever was. You know, I see a lot of kids getting stuck in uh, very rudimentary things done very well or trying to sound like other drummers and uh, not paying enough attention to individuality. How would you go about bringing, you know, the the whole character within a particular student? Like, uh, keeping it original, right? Like you, you did mention that you don't like your students or any musician for that matter to be imitative in their entire process or their yeah. approach. So w- what is the drill for that? How do you crack There's that? No drill for it. If you came and you started hanging out with me and we could have conversation and we liked each other company for more than a week, I think you'd be fine. I, I think that's really, it's as simple as that. If we're aligned in our thinking and you think it's important enough to spend time with me, and I think it's important enough for you to spend time with me, then uh, I think automatically my personality will find its way into your personality and vice versa. And uh, we'll have a great time talking and conversing and exchanging ideas. And uh, when you don't need to hang out with me anymore, you'll go and do your thing. That's it. (laughs) It's really very simple. It's yeah, you've, you've made it sound very simple. <laughs> but it is that simple because it's an alignment of a vision for your life story and your craft and how you see it evolving, uh, you know. And, you know, if you come to meet me and you get bored after a week and you say, listen, man, I have no idea what you're talking about, uh, frankly. And, and I'd say, well, then have a cup of chai and uh, you go do your thing, you know. Yeah. From from what I've gathered, uh, back in the day, you used to devote nearly three to four hours of practice time on a very regular yeah. basis. So how much of time yeah. are you able to devote right now? This is public confession, huh? It is. Yeah, yeah, no, I had a discussion yeah. with my saxophone player last night. He asked me the same question. Yeah. And I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't practice physically on the drums three, four hours a day anymore. Okay. Um, 
I practice in my head all day long, every day. I'm in a state of constant meditation. I'm not, I don't occupy myself too much with many other things. I like to cook, I like to feed people, and I like to write music. This is all that I do all day long. I don't have many distractions. I don't watch a lot of TV. Uh, I have a very minimal social life. Um, so I've reached a point where my yogic practice is at its highest level. Okay. And for me to translate, when I happen upon a new idea in my mind, I will then go to the drum set to find how to execute that. I also find it, that doesn't mean I don't practice at all. I mean, you know, I'll keep in touch with the instrument, but I don't feel the need to play three or four hours a day because I'm not trying to reinvent myself as a drummer. As I write music, I find that my drumming grows with it. And I like to tell people, and I know this may sound a little silly, but I'm a musician. I'm not a drummer. I'm a musician whose yeah. primary instrument is the drum set. I write and compose. My fascination is with harmony. I like to write. I arrange for strings. I write and arrange for A.R. Rahman. I am a composer. And I think that takes up a lot of my time as well because it's a craft that I wasn't born with. You see, I've, yeah. I've aspired to and understood. I'm still learning and I'm very, very fascinated in some ways more than drumming. Because I can play. I mean, yeah, I can play. I mean, I don't know what else you'd expect from me. You'd send me some music, I'd learn it, and I'll play it. But to write and arrange for an orchestra, for an 80-piece orchestra, for a film score, I find that very fascinating. I like it. I like to do that. So... Um, yeah, I don't I, I I don't spend crazy hours on the drum kit anymore. I enough to keep in shape and enough to try and manifest new ideas that I've suddenly thought of in a combination or I've seen an Indian rhythmic structure that I find I've happened upon. Yes, I will go to the drums to try and get the muscle memory yep. to be able to perform that. I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, classical music. Right? So, do you personally feel that the regimentation or the enormous discipline, like you mentioned, uh, demands that certain classical traditions might restrict and inhibit the process of catharsis? Would it, would it be right to make that statement? I don't think it might inhibit the state of catharsis because I think within tradition and discipline there is also release. There is a release of kind. Um, I, I, I'm trying to find the right words for it but if you take somebody like the late Kishori Amonkarji or Pandit yeah. Joshi uh, or Shiv Kumar Sharmaji they were enormously disciplined and you know grew up in a very strict learning classical music the way it meant to be learned. But at the heart of classical music is improvisation. That is what we have in common with jazz, which is why these two forces have been constantly 
sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, trying to merge with each other because at the heart of Indian classical music is improvisation. So even though it might be a strictly disciplined and rigorous sort of journey, the improv part sets you free. You know, you take all that discipline and that learning and then the moment seizes you and you seize the moment and then you're gone. You're no longer, you've surrendered. And once you've surrendered, you're floating on another light wave, you know, and that can only mean you're in a state of utter bliss. Yeah, this is, uh, we experienced this with uh, the fourth dimension many yeah. nights. And you come off stage, you're walking on air because you've experienced something not of this realm. Yeah. When four people are synchronous, synchronized in thought and action, it is truly, a, it's, it's magic. Right? It's nothing short of a miracle because you can't quantify it. You can't really scientifically break it down into some brain waves that were suddenly aligning in the ether. No, it's, it's four personalities who spent enough time with each other, know each other's playing, and are improvising to a point where suddenly the instrument is playing you. You are no longer playing the instrument. And that we chase every night. We are junkies for that feeling. And you don't always get it. It happens. And when it happens, you're hooked for life. You don't want to do or feel anything else. It's the highest drug. It's the most blissful state you can imagine. So it doesn't matter which music form. If there's improvisation, yeah. I think you're fine. Yeah. Do we get to hear the fourth dimension in India anytime soon? I'm not sure, man. We have one tour in uh, Europe in October. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, John McLaughlin has decided to retire. Oh, no. So now, yeah. Well, we don't know. You know, you never know. He may yeah. surprise us next year. Yeah. We don't know. But right. as of now, officially, that will be our last tour. Okay. Uh, let's talk about uh, the whole aspect of fulfillment. So what is the moment of triumph, of satisfaction and fulfillment for someone like you? You surely don so many different hats, that of a festival curator, curating music at the prestigious uh, Mahindra Percussion Festival. Uh, you've had a great recording career for films and uh, you, you're also a musical director for uh, Mr. Yar Rahman. Uh, or is it the part where you played, wherein you were part of the jazz universe, you played alongside uh, greats like Don Cherry? So what have been some of the pick moments of fulfillment for you after so many different accolades? I know, I know it'll be a little hard for you to pick one particular yeah. one, but yeah, could you try? It will be very difficult to pick one particular, though, you know, because... Um... To find yourself relevant and to find yourself uh, being considered worthy of serving a musical situation itself is very, very satisfying, uh, let alone being a musical director or blah, blah, blah. Uh, when when uh, uh, incredible musicians like Zakir Bhai, John McLaughlin, E.R. Rahman, when they call upon you 
to be a part of their musical universe in a very, very elevated position. You know, it it's, it's, uh, gives one a lot of courage and confidence to know that the certain choices you made were good. They were right. Because the world can tell you all kinds of stuff. You know what I mean? It's uh, We have no real barometer. As artists, it's you versus you every day. You know, and uh, you've got to stop listening to the chatter. And especially now with the internet and social media, it's just, it's gone ballistic. I mean, it's, yeah. everyone has a voice, which is very scary. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I really can't pick one moment, but of course, when I got the call from John McLaughlin. Okay. Man, that was like, uh, Wow. <laughs> it was it was something. Yeah, I'd have to say out of all that would be the top of the pile. Yeah. And how did you uh, how did you celebrate that uh, particular moment? Very silently. <laughs> okay. With my wife and shared it with my family and uh, and then I was to meet him in two weeks. He called me and he said, would you like to join the band? And uh, I said, well, it's the Pope Catholic. I mean, yeah, of course. And uh, uh, we used to go to this music fair in Frankfurt. And um, yeah, he said, come, we're going to go and jam with the boys, Etienne and Gary in Nice. And uh, he sent me 27 songs to learn in two weeks, (laughs) which was uh, quite something. But yeah, I just told my wife, I'm going to be at the studio. Uh, I'm not coming home for a couple of nights and just learn all this music. So yeah, I'd say that was probably uh, the high point of, yeah. Lovely, lovely. You did mention uh, Zakir Bhai a couple of times during our conversation. Well, he's my mentor and yeah. you know, my older brother. And, hey. Yeah. Hey. So... I have realized that there's a very special nurturing relationship that you've had with a couple of very reputed uh, musicians. And so how conscious have you felt of this particular privilege? Like, would you consider this uh, pressure or might be some sort of obligation? You've had musicians like Zakir Bai, you've had Sir John McLaughlin guiding you and inspiring you in so many different ways. So how do you handle that? And how important is it for younger musicians to apprentice with the elderly? Yeah, uh, I, I did feel pressure at first. Um, um, I did, I did feel pressure at first, and um, they made it easier for me. Okay. So Zakibai would tell me, "Listen, just." Don't think about anything, you know, because they know what you're going through. You know, they know what you're going through. John, John, geez, he said the same. He said, just be your joyous self. So I think it's upon, it's upon the uh, older musicians and the people we look up to, to, to give us the confidence. And I think, you know, they wouldn't choose, they wouldn't choose you if they didn't see something in you. Sure. And it might not be, it might be something you haven't seen yourself, you know? Right. 
And uh, so that's the wisdom that these people have, that they see something in you and they know the thoughts and questions. In fact, Johnji even said, he says, I know a lot of questions are going through your mind right now. You know, a lot of thoughts must be going through your mind. Because when I joined the band, you know, uh, I, I hadn't been playing drums for a long time. You know, for about 17 years, I stopped playing drums. I, I was doing music production. I was a producer, arranger. That was my life. There was not much live music. Uh, you know, everything was TV and film driven. So I, I wasn't really on top of my game. But they were very, very nurturing and very, very gentle with me till I, you know, found my feet again. And then it was all upwards from there, you know. And I think kids today have to get out of their mobile devices and get into the real world and interface with real musicians and real people and real teachers. And, you know, it's, you know, nobody is unattainable. It's not like I'm hard to find or anything. You just show up and say, listen, I have something and I want to take advice from you. I want to learn from you. And I, I'm, I'm always willing to share that with people. Absolutely. Wonderful. In, in one of your earlier interviews, uh, which is probably more than a decade old, I think it was an Al Jazeera interview of sorts. Uh, you yeah. had spoken about uh, musical entrepreneurs taking things lightly and uh, their laziness coming into picture uh, and not bringing about a new wave in India at that particular point. So what changes have you noticed in the Indian independent music industry at this point of time? And can you comment on the willingness of people to listen and appreciate this kind of music right now? Yeah, I think there's a change of change of the guard because if you see just like just like the film industry has lost most of its scripts to OTT you've got great scripts going to Netflix and Amazon and, and everybody why because they're not encumbered by film stars and their 80 crore 70 crore 80 crore price tag where no cinema will ever get made no film will get made unless it's, you know, got that kind of a budget. And there's so many good filmmakers, so many good actors who are now uh, enjoying OTT. And, and I, I watch it. And it's some great things on 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 uh, the TV. Yeah. Same things happening in the West as well, which is why actors there have aligned themselves with ODT and Apple Original and Netflix and, you know, same thing's happening in music. People are fed up with Bollywood. It's done. You know what I mean? Yep. I mean, you take, I don't know, you take Shah Rukh Khan out of the picture, you take somebody out of the picture. Yeah, it's a nice song. And then it won't have the same impact if it doesn't have that face. But as you see, independent musicians today have connected with the youth on a level that's Devoid of all glamour and BS, it's a musician on stage with a guitar telling a story and 10,000 kids singing along. And I see a big change of the guard. I think the indie scene is going to go from strength to strength. And yeah, I think it's a very, very exciting time musically. Yeah, absolutely. Are you at all drawn to the idea of formally studying music from a university or the kind of more academic work in music? 
Or do you continue to draw inspiration from the more intuitive processes of music being a self-taught musician? So I, I, I have a bit of both. Um, I think I reached a point compositionally and arrangement-wise where I kind of plateaued. And what happened in the pandemic was it was like a forced sabbatical. And I went, I went online and I learned how to write, uh, learned about jazz progressions. I learned about uh, substitutions in chords, things that I never paid attention to. I would all, always have a piano player to do that for me. Um, I had a song on my album, Baraboom, called uh, Revolutions. Yeah, I've heard that. Which is basically Maladi. It's 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 from the Carnatic piece Maladi, and um, I had to reconfigure that idea for a three-piece band with Etienne Mbappe and uh, his friend Christophe Cravero from Paris, who's a violin player. Okay. And I said, but you know, this is an Indian melody, and it's a traditional Carnatic melody. What do I do? So I blocked the melody, and I listened to the arrangement. And I went to the Berkeley College of Music online uh, thing, mm-hmm. and I learned about the Spanish mode. Oh, lovely! And I found that I could apply the Spanish mode to the set of chords that I had written, uh, which my friend had written for Revolutions. So I came up with an entirely new melody on the same arrangement. So I'm happy to now uh, say that uh, I think for certain decisions or things I have to make, I need formal information. The intuitive is to not fall into a trap and be repetitive and imitative. But the formal is to inform myself. I need to know these things because it's, again, harmony, melody, point, counterpoint. Foundation. Yes, I need to know these things. So, and and it's a study I continue. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, You have worked with A.R. Rahman as a musical director for for the performance aspect of things. So what does it entail for a musician to be part of that group? What, what's, what's the criteria and how do you screen or how do you scout for these musicians to be part of that live setup? Some musicians reach out to us. You'll discover somebody on YouTube, on Instagram, like this new girl that uh, is playing bass with us, Nilanjana, Nilanjana yeah. Ghosh. Yeah. She's actually a formally trained Indian classical vocalist. But I didn't know that. I heard playing bass yeah and a friend of mine sent a clip to me and i was like wow you know and uh, we had a situation where our regular bass player couldn't make it and we gave her a shot and she kept the gig that's it mm-hmm. you know she was on top of it and i told ar i sent the clip to ar and i said listen i think we should try this girl and he said, go for it. She sounds great. And then one day I heard her sing. So I told Aya, she sings. So Aya said, sing. And now she opens Chenya Chenya. She opens that song. <laughs> yeah. So she's uh, an integral part of the band now, you know. So <clears throat> the criteria is a high level of musicianship, reliability, to come to the concert, rehearsals, prepared. We don't do any learning on stage. You should have learned your parts and come. Uh, material goes to everybody. There's no excuse. 
and you have to merge and blend and have a way of assimilating what A.R. Rahman's vision is for the band and which I implement. And uh, I write the arrangements, a lot of them. So I, I needed to sound and play a certain way. So uh, we keep those musicians that are able to <clears throat> do that. And we have a band now that's been together for a while. So it's, 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 it runs like a well-oiled machine. Could you tell the importance of Kunnakol to your understanding and knowledge of Indian classical music? For me, Kunnakol is at the center of most everything that I do, especially in terms of... Uh, uh, I don't read and write music, for instance. Mm-hmm. So if Mr. John McLaughlin sends me a song, I break it down with Kunnakol. How many 16th notes, how many eighths, what rest... And I create a little poem for myself. And that becomes the foundation through which then I can stretch myself over that arrangement. So the whole conical system is very integral to my approach to breaking down arrangements, to being part of an ensemble that has conical within its repertoire. And what Indian classical rhythmic uh, information has done to me is it has affected the way I approach the drum set, the syncopation, the swing, what I feel comes from this country, but it's very, very in keeping with the fact that this is a Western instrument and needs to be played a certain way. I'm not a big fan of trying to play monocle exercises on the drum set yeah. and being some, yeah, I, I think other people can do that. They, they do it very well. I'm not a big, yeah, it doesn't do anything for me. I do want to uh, stress though that even non-rhythmic people should learn Konakol to develop good time, good phraseology, to understand rhythm better. Konakol is at the heart of everything, which is something that John McLaughlin has done for years. Yeah. You know? Yeah. How do you go about channeling uh, spiritual and philosophical perspectives when you work on such complex compositions? How do you how do you go about it? Is there a particular structure? Do you strategize things, or it it comes off naturally to someone like you? I think the only way you can be spiritual is to surrender. I think if you're trying to be in control of your playing, it's very difficult. Um, when you are in control of everything that you do, it's for me mechanical. Listen, don't get me wrong. I mean, you take a look at Virgil Donati playing drums. It is spiritual. I mean, he's, 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 he's insane in his technique and everything. But he's one of the few guys who I see who's, less for lack of a better word, a muscle-bound drummer, but who has fluidity, you know? Um, and he's stretched the possibilities of what it is possible to do on a drum set, I think, further than most people I, I know, you know? Um, but, you know, you look at somebody like Dennis Chambers and then you see it's it's powerful and driven, but you can see the flight because he's surrendered. It's, it's gone. I, I don't know how to explain it because there comes a point where uh, when you've practiced enough and you're, you're one with your instrument, um, 
there comes a point when the instrument starts playing you and the, that's the good stuff. That's where the good stuff starts, you know. So I don't think this, the, the spiritual thing is not like a tactic. It's not something you summon. It's there. It's just waiting yeah. to manifest. You have to be open and surrender yourself to it. Because when you're, you know, there's a lot of thoughts that go through musicians when they play, you know. Oh, is the audience appreciating what I do? Is anyone clapping after I play? And what, what's happening, you know? These are all things that should be furthest from your mind when you're on stage. You should be just in a state of joy. And I think if you surrender to that feeling, this, the whole spirituality aspect is waiting to happen. It's just waiting to embrace you. Uh, in the remaining stint in your career, is, is there a dream or any sort of ambition in particular? Would you like to see yourself performing at certain noteworthy avenues or maybe like uh, put out like many more albums with other musicians that you might uh, want to collaborate? I mean, no what are these markers that you've set for yourself? Yeah, I'd like to do a project with an orchestra. I, I'm, you know, I'd like to write something for drums and orchestra. I'm working on something. Um, besides that, I have so many friends all over the world that I want to collaborate with, you know. And it's not enough. One lifetime is not enough. So you've got to keep working. And uh, we lost two or three years because of this pandemic. And uh, right. it's time to get to work and different projects. I mean, we met these... Uh, you know, the Spanish percussionists that came, Paquito Gonzalez, and I definitely mm -hmm. want to do something with them. They were just phenomenal, phenomenal. And um, my good friend, Arto Tunzbeazio, he was here, uh, and uh, we've spoken of doing a project. Uh, I have a band with Gary Husband. It's a trio we're going to do with a saxophone player. and uh, That's for 2024. Okay. I'm playing drums, Gary's playing keys, and he has his own little drum kit. And we'll Is it the one with Ingyun Lee, this, this, this project? No, that was a duet he did with Ingyun. Oh, okay, okay. Because Gary played drums and piano on that. Right, right. And that was just the two of them. Uh, phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. So this is more a trio with no bass, no bass player at this point. Oh, okay. So Gary will play left-hand bass and... Uh, <laughs> So I'm really looking forward to it. I, uh, you know, I want to make music with people I love and respect, and I'm comfortable with. Uh, I'm not looking to be a sideman and play with a lot of other players. And you know, after playing with John McLaughlin and the Fourth Dimension, I'm quite spoiled, and I'm happy to pursue things that are in keeping with my sensibilities. Yeah. Lovely. Uh, you embody some very essential qualities in central dimension of India's musical traditions. And you've also been able to reach out to the West and create this remarkable synthesis, shall we say, right. uh, while retaining the essential Indianness in you, right? So you've right. spent a lot of time abroad, you've, you've grown sure. up there, sure. and you are a global figure. So how conscious do you feel of your Indian heritage when you're out there? I don't know if I'd say conscious. I mean, I am a product of the upbringing in this country, and I th think I wear it at all times. Uh, and I think people see that in my, my 
mannerisms and the way I speak. Uh, I, I, I'm able to converse with people from many cultures and, uh, you know, because of my duality of the East and the West, they both live in me very comfortably. I'm equally at home uh, in an African-American funk band, or I could play um, with Mirdangam players here, or with, you know, Salva Ganesh, like we did. As such, I, it's possible for me to meld into many cultures, really. You know, and uh, wouldn't be a problem. Sorry, one sec. This might be the driver. Sorry. Um, I'm not so conscious of it. I'm just, uh, I'm, I, I represent this duality that lives inside me uh, on my instrument and outside of my instrument. You know, I, I'm equally at home in New York or in Chennai. No problem. No problem. And uh, as far as this duality, what it's done is it's allowed me to build bridges between East and West. Uh, uh, you can hear it on Bada Boom. It's quite effortless, yeah. I feel. It's not very forced or contrived. There's um, an easy exchange of ideas between East and West, um, both in the performance and the writing. Because I think beyond a certain point when, you know, uh, there's an excellence of music, cultures and boundaries disappear, languages disappear, and only, you know, the discipline remains. Because everyone wants to get to the same place. Whether it's a ballet dancer, whether it's a musician, whether it's a saxophone player, painter, poet, you want to reach that point where you are communicating with a divine force. And in that we are equal and that's what we strive for. And then that point, everything else disappears, you know, and you start speaking as one. So, you know, that was the attempt. You make things sound very easy. And uh, yeah, I, I, I sense this ease in everything that you speak. It's oh, pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I tend not to overthink things too much. I think that may be yeah, yeah. the strength I have. Yeah. Um, yeah, you just flow and feel and flow and be. And, and I think India has a lot to do with that. Uh, my friend Etienne Mbappe in the fourth dimension, he's from Cameroon. Yeah. And he thinks and feels the same way like I do. And so does Gary, really. Because we are people that grew up in a time where it was freer, no? It was not so... It was not under a microscope and being analyzed and being commented on. And it was a very, very simple time, I feel. But that's where we got our foundation built. Now we are able to withstand anything social media can throw at us. <laughs> you know, it's really easy. It's, it's easy like that. So in the interest of time, I'd like to come to the last part of our agenda, yeah. which is the rapid fire round. Okay. So I'm going to make this very easy and quick. <laughs> right? So, first okay. question for you. What is that one song that always makes you cry? The one song that always makes me cry? I wonder if there's that one song. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not a... I am a romantic. 
but um, I don't I don't have that one song. I like songs. I like songs that have a twist in them, like you can't you didn't see it coming. You know what I mean? Like the movie Sixth Sense, you didn't see it coming. Nice. I, I like songs like that. Okay. Uh, sorry, I don't have one song. I cry. I cry at the films, man. My daughter's very embarrassed. I watch <laughs> movies and I cry. I do. Okay. I do. But um, yeah, it would have to be for me if if I had to choose, it could be anything. It could be Kishori Amonkarji singing something or Shaka Khan or Stevie Wonder. Um, yeah, the, you know that kind of thing. On the contrary, what is your favorite guilty pleasure song? Guilty pleasure song. You have to elaborate. What does that mean? In the is sense, that, in the sense that a song that you are very secretive about and you don't want to disclose it to others, like a guilty pleasure song of sorts. <laughs> you mean? Do I have a song I really like that I might be embarrassed to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think I have one. Uh, listen, hey, listen. I'll listen to anything from Wham to Mozart. Okay. I'm not stuck up, man, because, you know, I love George Michael. I love George Michael. Loved George Michael. Yeah. And I'll listen to anything that, you know, gives me. Uh, let me put it this way I'll listen to anything that, when I listen to, I say, I wish I had written this. That's the only music I listen to, really, to be honest with you. If if uh, There's all great music in the world. But when I listen to something and it doesn't keep me up at night, I won't be going back to it a second time. You said that you enjoy cooking. So what would be yeah. like an <laughs> ideal uh, dish that you might want to cook for Sunday night? No, no. I, I am in the pandemic, man. I have increased my repertoire to like 100 recipes now from Asian to Italian, I mean, killing, killing pasta. You will not eat pasta like I make. In fact, I was in London, and I went over and cooked for Gary. Okay. And I made some Thai food for him, and we had a great evening. And I can cook Asian, Italian, some Indian, tapas, some Spanish. So I'm, I'm, I, I find it very, very uh, similar to music. You know, different ingredients, you mix and you match, you use your taste and you kind of balance and level things out till it comes just right. Yeah, I find it very, it was very therapeutic for me during the pandemic. And also then the joy of feeding people, that's a big one, because you make something and you see uh, the effect it has on people. That's very satisfying. But like me, it's like music. It's like music. What are the top two qualities of a music? educator that you personally embody? Well, I think you have to be compassionate and I think you have to know to play to people's strengths. Because it can become a thing of power, you know, knowing somebody is not ready for something and throwing it at them. I think that's that's not kind. So, yeah, play to people's strengths so that they get the confidence to shine and grow and uh, develop other strengths and abilities. That's it. I think that's probably the most important thing about an educator. I have one last question for you. 
uh, which is a custom in all of my interviews and I ask all of my guests this very question yeah. so down in the distant horizon what would you want to be remembered as so i don't know if i'm going to be a big disappointment to you but i have a saying that what you think of me is none of my business so uh i i don't know what i want to be remembered as you enjoyed spending some time with me uh you know people ask me about my future and you know my nephew often tells me they said what do you see how do you see yourself in the future and i don't see my you know my biggest vision is to be with my family and have a big family big a big table out in the garden food and we're all together the children everybody uh and we eat and we drink and we celebrate life and for me that's music you know that's exactly what it is it's no different and uh i you, you remember me how you want to remember me i'm i'm fine with whatever doesn't <laughs> doesn't really bother me lovely uh thank you so much for taking time out being a part of this my pleasure I, i hope you enjoyed uh, this interview will I be did. a dish you did okay good to know I that did. yeah it's, it's it's by far one of the most intelligent interviews i've done thank you that that means a lot coming from you yes i'm going to i'm going to make some nice food and uh, celebrate whatever you, you must. said you must <laughs> you must So this interview will be additionally aired on uh, Big FM Shillong and Aizol on the Sunday primetime okay. show and okay. it'll also be part of my uh, podcast Stalwarts of Music uh, on YouTube yes. in an audio video format and across all okay. major audio streaming platforms. I'll be sure to let you know once it's out on all these platforms. Yeah. Uh, it's been an incredible blessing, privilege and an honor. Thank you so much right. sir for making this happen. Right. My pleasure Aditya and good luck with all your other endeavors and interviews and everything that you're doing. Thank you and I'd I'd love to stay in touch with you. Please anytime you got my number. All right. All right yes. have a nice day and uh, you too. Have a great time in Bangalore. Yeah. I will. Bye bye. God bless. Bye. bye.